leadership in cybersecurity isn't just about understanding threats. It's about leading a team to navigate them with confidence. At CPF Coaching LLC, we specialize in taking your leadership skills to the next level. With over 15 years in the cybersecurity field, we empower professionals and startups to reach unprecedented heights. Imagine having a personalized coaching experience tailored to your unique career ambitions. From strategic planning to masterful pitch and interview preparations, we're here to guide you through every challenge. Join us for our unique value proposition workshops or dive into our vibrant learning community for continuous skill advancement. Don't just be a part of the industry. Redefine it. Visit cpfcoaching.com for more information. Discover the leader within. Contact CPF Coaching LLC today and schedule your strategic session. Welcome to another episode of Breaking Into Cybersecurity, CISO Thursday. My fellow co-hosts are not able to make it with us, so it's just an intimate session with myself and our guest, Diana Kelly, today. But before we get to Diana, I'll recommend that everyone on LinkedIn, if you're following us, uh, make sure you follow myself and Diana, as well as the show. For those of you on YouTube, hit that subscribe button and then the notification button right down below. That way you get that notification the next time we come on. And for those of you on podcasts, just follow us, give us a 10-star review, maybe five, um, if that's all you can give, and then share it with all your friends and family. So back to our regularly scheduled broadcast, Diana, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Chris. Um, would you like to share a little bit about your background and how you got into cyber and what was your journey? Yeah, so I have, it's a, it's a long career in, in, in cybersecurity. I actually fell in love with computers back in the 1970s. And my, I, I learned how to program a Texas Instruments calculator. And then my dad, who was a research professor at MIT Lincoln Labs, got me an account on the MIT PDP 10s and 11s at Tech Square, but they were connected into the DARPANET. Yeah, so this is the late 70s. And for anybody out there, there was not, there wasn't, it was not like it was today, believe me, um, not just in the fact that it, it was all green screen or amber screen and all command line interface, but also people just did not know about computers. They weren't woven into the fabric of our lives, but I fell in love because there was email, there was instant messaging. I was connected to people around the country that I could talk with and there were games on there too. So I was like, this is the best. Um, and that sort of led to a long love of computers and networking. So I had, uh, I actually went to school for English, but when I graduated, I was always the tech guy at all the, the publishing companies I worked for. And eventually someone saw what I was doing and said, look, I think you should be our head of network. And I said, but I'm not a tech person. And I said, yeah, you're a tech person. Uh, <laughs> and went from there to building and managing a global network for a startup in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And at this point now, it was time to get on the internet because guess what people, we used to make networks that were connected to nothing but ourselves. They were these little closed systems like terrariums. And it wasn't all wonderful like we have now where we can all uh, just be with everybody around the globe all the time. So finally, at this startup, we, we had built a global network and now we connected into the internet. And within a, a few weeks, we had an FTP server. We were uh, eight people could download patches there and somebody exposed a vulnerability and got onto the network. And I realized at that point that no matter how much I built a beautiful network and all the time and effort I went into creating these systems that would help the business be better, that if there's some bad actor out there who's gonna try and attack it, all that work is gonna go for naught and the business is not gonna be able to function properly. So I said, look, I gotta figure out the security stuff and focus on that 
and work with the industry to make sure that we get security right so that we can then go back to doing all these wonderful things. And at the time, someone said to me, you're an idiot because the security stuff's going to be solved in a couple of years. So stay in just pure networking. Don't go into the security <laughs> side. I said, I, but we got to get this right. Um, yeah. And as we all know, that uh, advice from tw the 25, 27 years ago was not quite accurate. <laughs> security did not get all solved. And then I had a really long odyssey throughout um, different roles in cybersecurity because it, you know, it's the, the incredible thing about security itself is in cybersecurity is that, you know, it weaves through everything that we do. It's in technology, it's in the people, it's in the process, right? Our three pillars. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's really, it's, it's the underpinning of whether we can do what we want to achieve. Technology is incredible, but only if we can trust it to operate as expected, even when under attack. So I had to learn networking, obviously, and securing networking, but then I had to understand applications and how to secure applications, because all of a sudden I realized no matter what I do at the, you know, up to layer three, it's layer seven that's giving us trouble. Then I had to learn people, because I realized people, if they're not, have a secure mindset, uh, then that's going to be where the attack, the attackers just look for your, your soft area. So it's been a long, a long process of learning a lot of different uh, parts of security, the whole different layers of the technical stack, interacting with people, and then starting to uh, having to influence the highest uh, ups in the chain and in, in the company because security back then and still today is often seen as a cost center and not as, as something that's really actually contributing to the bottom line a little bit. Less so today, there's more awareness of how security can impact financials, but certainly you know, 25, 30 years ago, you, when you were talking to executives about investment in security, there was a, it, was, it was a heavy, heavy lift. So I had to learn you know, what went on, what mattered to the business and how to make that, that argument in a way that was rational and compelling for executives that investing in security or certain security technologies or training was the right thing for the business to keep it going. Wow, there's so many things that I want to dive down deep in. You started with the networks, you went up the stack, then yeah. you figured figured out that, that there's people at the end of the stack. So now right. we have to secure the network, the technology, and the people. Um, as you went through that journey, you, you learned everything. But today, people don't have to go through all, all that. How would you recommend someone that is interested in cybersecurity today, if they weren't interested in the network, they potentially weren't interested in the technology, but they were interested in the people, like, like your English major, your communications major. How do we get different points of view into this industry so that we could communicate better with the business to show them that value? Yeah, I you know I th I think it's 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 partly on us as as an industry to make it really clear that security does weave through the fabric of organizations and I've been talking about business because the majority of my work has been at companies but all organizations uh higher ed you know the 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 public sector there's the in infrastructure right the security needs to be in all of these and security is now, because it's across all of that, we need so many different viewpoints for a lot of different reasons. One is that it, we need to be able to think like the people that are attacking us to understand uh, you know, what, where they may try to hit us. And that means that different, we've got, attackers don't come in just one shape and size. Attackers come in many different shapes and sizes. So getting at many different people thinking about what could what how could somebody get in because otherwise you get into sort of simple think and, and our brains are really interesting and in that we're designed to have shortcuts so if we keep doing the same thing again and again we kind of shortcut there and that if it leads to a, a homogeneity of thought which is wonderful for us when we're trying to do something fast and excellent when you're trying to get to work and you've got a million things on your mind and you can multitask and just magically almost find your, your brain shortcuts, right? To, you know, I have to take this turn and that turn. Not so good when we're trying to design systems that are resilient to many different kinds of attackers and mindsets. So as we're thinking in defensibility, as we're thinking through threat modeling, having different mindsets help and bringing that into the industry and being open, being open to bringing those different viewpoints into the conversation. I've had, you know, 
conversations with some really brittle uh, thinkers who, yeah, if you don't know exactly this and exactly that, even, you know, weird stuff, like on back in the day when firewalls you had, that was it. Like firewalls were sort of what we did in security. Yeah, so I would talk to somebody, we were trying to hire a firewall admin and, and I'm like, they've got, look, they've got five years of experience with all these other products that are great and wonderful. Yeah, but they don't have experience with the one product we need. A firewall rule is a fight, you know, they can, they can learn it pretty quickly. You know, that that's not a lot, a big bridge, but being brittle about, but it's not exactly what I want. So we, we have that a lot, you know, it, they don't know exactly what I think they need. They're not security people. So opening up our own thought process and our aperture of what, what is security so that we can bring that diversity in to the, the, to the work, but also helping people to understand that there's a lot of different work. You, you had this beautiful way of saying like, I, and I hadn't thought of it that way, but I kind of went from the basement, you know, up to, <laughs> up to the, you know, up the elevator a little bit in, in my work. And people kind of, a lot of times it's like, it's the hacker in the hoodie. I have to be super technical. So many people say to me, but I'm not a technical person. I don't, you know, I don't want to go and, and attack things. And it's like, that's fine. Are you a lawyer? Because boy, do we need lawyers in this to help understand a, a large variety of of you know policy, um, how we respond to things like cyber insurance, even how we write our agreements with our partners. Are you really good? At, are you drawing? Are you great at drawing? Are you an illustrator? Because some people are visual thinkers, and you can paint a wonderful picture with words, but a picture paints a thousand words. So we need fantastic graphic designers. I've been so lucky to have some really tough technical ideas translated by brilliant illustrators and graphic designers into something that so many people can consume and understand. We need communicators because what we're doing in cybersecurity is difficult for some people to understand because it can, there may be a technical aspect. The other thing is that it can be scary. So communication skills and people who understand how to communicate in crisis. So many, so it's, and, and I'm just, this is a tiny sliver of the kinds of diverse jobs are available. So we need to bring diversity of thought in. We also have a diversity of jobs available. So anybody that's thinking of coming in and thinking, well, I don't want to be in the basement. I'm not technical. Um, there's a lot more jobs out there that we need. We need people on. Yeah, absolutely. And one, one of our one of our viewers, Gary Wright, mentions so many shapes and sizes, as well as dimensions in cybersecurity, which adds layers yeah. of complexity, which makes yeah. me want to pivot to kind of back to the comment that you mentioned where threat actors come in either way, but they don't need certifications. They don't need degrees. They don't need right. all, all the requirements that we've been putting on our candidates to try to get into the industry. What can we do to change that? You are exactly right. I mean, you know, it's like, it, it, is that a cyber criminal who's a, has got into to your your system did they did they get a master's degree and yeah or a cissp or a cissp <laughs> even um yeah to start thinking about truly what credentials you need those people to have and being a little bit more realistic with some of the job descriptions there's and i don't mean to over gender this but there have been strong research that shows that in general women will not apply for a job if they don't have about 90% of what's requested in the job description. And men will apply for the job at closer to 60%. And what has happened is a lot of the job descriptions come out with this, you know, they'll say, well, if people are going to apply it around the 60% mark. And I don't think it's a, a conscious thing. I think it's just we've gotten kind of used to it. Um, so, you know, I better write a whole bunch of stuff. And that means I'll get somebody that's hitting me at about 60%. So they might put in yeah, I want X number of credentials, you know, whether it's, it's security plus CISSP or, or, you know, mic up. Oh, my mic up. Yeah. It's actually down. Is that better? I, I think the other one is, is clicking. Oh, okay. I think that's um, the one that, that's on right now. Okay. Let me, let me see what it's, it seems to be picking up. Hold on. No, it's picking up this one, but sometimes this one clicks and people hate it. So let me go to a different one. Okay, because I, I hear when you move your hands. That's why I wanted to. Okay, so now I'm on this mic. Yeah, okay. I don't know what my Yeti is. Um, but so people will, uh, will read these job descriptions that are very aspirational. 
And that contributes to people thinking, well, I need to have all of these different, you know, I need a PhD, I need to have all these certifications. But the people that are hiring, they don't really need all of that. They're just trying to sort of stack up the job description to get somebody at that 60% mark. So maybe we can just step back everybody and truly think about what experience do you need from that employee for that job? What experience can you give them or get them to if that's going to be something that's required at the company? So some companies will say, we need Security Plus or CISSP. Do you need it when you hire a person or is that something that you can fund for them so that they they learn up in the job? And then maybe you say, look, if, if you do that, you're going to stay with us for a year so that you get a lower attrition rate. So stepping back and being more reasonable about what you really need for that job, I think will help a lot with hiring rather than just saying, oh, I'm just going to default out to we need a four-year um, computer science degree. I've seen jobs where, you know, they say like, you know, experience is not the same as having the, the degree. It needs four-year computer science. And that would meet, that would cut me out here. I've been doing this for 30 years. Whatever I could have learned back in the 80s in college wouldn't be very applicable now. <laughs> but right. so people thinking about their, you know, rethinking how they, they write those job descriptions and truly what they need for that, that employee. And then if they could even potentially um, sub it out even more where they could bring in a junior level and a mid level for that senior level role that they were looking to fill. And then now they have two bodies that they could grow up and create a, a talent pipeline within the organization and continue that going forward, they, they would also potentially have less attrition going on as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and you, you make a good point, which is pipeline. And that's another thing that we've started to see in the field is that people will get the, it's very hard to get the entry level job, but then they finally get that job, but then they don't know where to go. And if you're hiring people without having some sort of a plan for them, you're going to have a small portion who love that because some people they're like, this is my job. I want to do it. And I never want to, I don't want more pressure. I want to stay exactly where I am. And that's great. But there are also a lot of people that want to have, understand that there's a path for them and a place for them to grow in the organization. And if they can't see that and don't have help with it, they're going to go and rehiring is extremely expensive and disruptive. And you mentioned like, they don't, they don't see that future. How can we even shift seeing that future back to elementary schools, high schools, where they see someone like yourself that they can model. They see um, Hispanics, they see Blacks, they see all different colors, as well as neurodiverse, as well as um, individual doing analyst work or uh, coding work or all the different things that we do. It, it feels like Hollywood just shows the quick hack or the breaking into the bank and then that's it. But it doesn't show the diversity of roles that we have that we can stimulate the next generation in coming into this industry. I I actually started, I, I have, I've had to stop doing it because of, of other um, commitments, but I, I founded this series called My Cyber Why. And the entire reason I, I founded it was that I realized that in my work, I was running into people in security that were doing so many jobs I didn't know existed. And that one of the first ones in that series is, is a, a, a person named Tommy Salmanpa, who is the head of security for Finland's equivalent of FAA, but also because the airspace needs to be, there needs to be collaboration in air, in air mm -hmm. safety. Uh, you know, he, there's also international organizations that look at the safety of the airspace and he, and he participates in those, those two. And when I met him, I was just completely floored at the work he was doing. And it, I realized there's this whole other part of cybersecurity that I didn't even know about. I knew about the code on the planes itself and the security mm -hmm. of that, but not the kind of work he was doing. So I created this, this series, My Cyber Why, and that was, it was a celebration of people doing jobs you probably didn't know existed all around the world for cyber and what the different, the incredible diversity of those jobs and, and also students and what students were studying. Cause it just, like Alan Zhu is one of the, the guests and you know, she's 16 years old. She's a cyber patriot, um, has you know competed in CTFs and just incredible work at 
at 16. So if you're thinking, well, I have to wait till I'm older, it, that was an example of, no, you can get started pretty early in this. So I think the more that we talk about it and the more that we help to showcase all the, the rich, um, you know, life's rich pageant of jobs and cybersecurity, I think the more people will, uh, you know, younger people or people who are reskilling, thinking of going into the field, will see, oh, you know, there is a, a place for me and represent, and that's why I share the mic, pass it around, you know, make sure that we, we don't keep talking to just the same people, but when we've got people that are out there talking about security that we help to amplify the, the wonderful, rich diversity of uh, people who are cyber defenders. Yeah, absolutely. I know, for example, uh, the uh, whole Cyberhuman Initiative, one of our founders, their son is 16 years old and was interested in this program where we connect them with a diverse set of training resources that are all low cost and free for them to explore where in cybersecurity that they wanted to go. And that they were um, an above average pushing teenager, but they wanted to do this program and they were so interested in it. They knocked out a hundred hours of training in no time. Like we were expecting they would take two, three months to do it. And they were done in one month because they were just so passionate about it. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, and you, you mentioned like, uh, cybersecurity in physical things. We we often yeah. forget that operational technology have computers in them, cars, planes, trains, automobiles, um, gas pumping stations. All of these have technology in them and they need individuals to, to keep them going to protect them. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's at, at one point, the, the average, uh, the average new sedan, you know, car had more lines of code of it in it than than Windows. And we do, we forget that we're basically, we're driving computers now, we're flying in computers. Our, the thing that's keeping our, our food cold is the computer and very often connected to the, um, televisions are absolutely computers. You know, in fact, to the point that you get a new television now and the first thing it asks is for you to log into your Google ID. You, know? you can update it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So I know you're a part of this amazing organization called uh, the Cyber Future Foundations. Whoops, right yeah. here. What's the mission behind uh, the Cyber Futures Foundation? Yeah, the Cyber Future Foundation, which was started by Val Mukherjee, and I'm on the, the board for, um, is, is really about connecting technology and the business because there does need to be this communication and this bridge between what's happening in business and, and how technology fits into that. But we've certainly, we've grown in a variety of ways to figure out how we solve that sort of that, that very large problem, you know, where are the particular areas where we can make a difference? And so one of the, the areas that we made a difference is in uh, humanitarian work, and right now there was with Afghanistan helping people there, whether it's to uh, give them secure communication so that they can can get out or to help the aid organizations that are, are to secure them so that they can they can help the people get out. And then once people are out of countries when they when they're as refugees, how do you help to reskill them? And we're now working with Ukrainian organizations to help um, there during the, the war. Um, so in addition to that, we also have a, a cyber workforce initiative and we are celebrating and, and trying to help solve the problem of this cyber workforce gap uh, at Cyber Talent Week. It's coming up in, in I think it's two weeks from now, April mm -hmm. the week of April 19th. It's, it's going across the entire nation. We've got virtual events starting in the West uh, for Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and a wonderful set of speakers and panels for people that would like to join us. You could sign up. And then we're going to land for the last two days of the conference in person in the Washington, D.C. area at George Mason University. So if anybody can join us at George Mason, we're bringing together some of the key stakeholders from private and public sector to not just have a conversation about the fact that there's a problem, but to try and really define what it is we can come together to do next to truly address the problem, because we know that there's a there's a open headcounts, companies are trying to hire people in security, they can't, 
They're also having trouble hanging on to people in security. But we have what's very sad. That would that headline kind of makes you think, oh, that means if I get a degree in cyber, I get or I get a certification, I'm just going to have this this wonderful you know set of, of rich opportunity, and everyone's going to try and hire me. I heard somebody the other day said, oh, when somebody comes out of cyber, out of at if they can code and defensively, they can make half a million dollars a, a, a year the day that they graduate. And I was like. Maybe some, but I certainly know many people who have gone through programs, come out with degrees, graduated top of their class. It takes them months to get a job. And something back to what we were talking about, that job description, the ATS, the applicant tracking systems, they do keyword matching. And sometimes people with good degrees get ready to, to work, will get rejected from literally hundreds of uh, submissions that they enter into these online job um, boards. So there's there is there continues to be a problem. There's also that problem of once we've gotten people into the field, how do we keep them in, especially with you know what's your path? And as you were talking about earlier, diversity. If you get into an organization that doesn't value diversity of thought, it's very easy for people to say, why am I in this business at all? Uh, so then they leave and we, now we've lost someone who's trained up that was ready to be a really valuable part of the cybersecurity workforce. But for what, for, you know, the reason of it wasn't working for them has now left. And now we're even more, you know, we have to find even more people. To fill. Let's not fill a pipe that's so leaky that we lose some of the best assets. Let's really make sure that we've got a very strong pipe. And so that's what Cyber Talent Week is about. It's not just saying, oh, we need more diversity. It's really coming together and saying, what can we do as a community right now to make sure that we're gonna keep more people, getting more people in cyber and keeping them in cyber because they're thriving there. Wow. that that's. That's so enriching because I, I know I, I've talked about this and I've reached out, for example, to my local school district and offered help, like, how can I help with this? And oh. what I found out is that there's some large organizations, um, I'll just say a three-letter cloud service provider, that the, the school district actually outsources their training to. They, they Because they don't have enough teachers to do the training that they work with like a cloud service provider to be able to provide that training to them. And I on the on the cloud service providers aspect, that's amazing that you're willing to invest yeah. the resources in the communities that you're working in to grow that pipeline for the future and not yeah. just see that um, they're just hiring people today, but they're investing in the next generation as well. Yeah, a lot of big technology companies I have in my my history. I've worked for IBM. I've worked for Microsoft. So I, I know what they do from a real experience. But, you know, I've seen other large, you know, Amazon and Google. There's a lot of, of work going from the large providers saying that understanding that this is a problem and trying to address it. And one of the things that we're trying to do with Cyber Future Foundation and, and why we're bringing together uh, you know, stakeholders at Cyber Talent Week is that as we have so many wonderful initiatives occurring in sort of these atomic pockets, could we start to bring this together so that we can work as an organized community and be even stronger together as we address the problems? Yeah, and one of the other, the other initiatives that, that I work to, to towards is helping veterans that are coming out of the military. Most of these individuals have had some sort of IT and security training just because they've had to be in a secure environment, yet they forget how to highlight their transferable skills coming out of the military and rely on, oh, I've been a, a vet or I'm a vet to try to get a role, but you're finding that you're not getting the roles or that, that they're lost trying to get into cybersecurity because oftentimes they, they don't know where to look. So with the whole yeah. cyber human initiative, we also help them figure out like where they want to go, what they want to do, and then help them with the branding. Like, let's figure out those transferable skills. Let's highlight how you've done identity and access management, yeah. how you've done secure writing security policies, or at least the ability to look at regulations and then figure out a policy from there. Because a policy is really just 
rules and regulations that someone has to follow. And it's not that hard to really take it from the military or uh, the medical industry and go to another industry. But I think in security, we think, oh, we're, we're a special snowflake that we can't get other people into the industry from. And I think that's also a mindset that we need to shake ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, you know, opening up, you know, what we think is, is a, is a good person to, to be part of our, you know, our industry, you talked about neurodiversity, for example, um, I'm a dyslexic and it, you, that's something that luckily, are you dyslexic too? Yeah, I am. Yeah. I'm ADHD. Okay. Uh, so yes, we're neurodiverse and yet we are in this industry and we have thrived. I have friends who are aut autistic. Nicola Whiting is one of the best uh, proponents about, you know, autism and, you know, why you would want to hire someone who's autistic rather than saying, oh, well, I, I see that as a, as a disability or a, something. I, you, actually, the benefits of hiring somebody with that background and the same with, with, with uh, you know, with, with veterans. They have skill sets that transfer. So let's see how they transfer well. And let's also, as managers and hiring, uh, fo as hiring people, also be you know careful too to understand who you hire and how you hire and how to help them thrive because PTSD is something that's now getting talked about more and more in cybersecurity because it's very it's high stress we can't solve the problem you know it's like people are like why why can't you fix it because it's not like oh, I'll just I'll, I'll just tick that button and now everything's safe um, so PTSD is coming and we work very long hours under high stress a lot of veterans have PTSD. So if you're hiring one, understanding that you, you're going to get a lot of skills, but also being a manager that's compassionate to help them thrive and be successful. Just because somebody has something like me, I right, you and I were both dyslexic. So if somebody gave us a speed reading test, maybe we're not going to do as well as the next person. So don't, but we're fantastic employees. So being the kind of employer that understands the, that the, who you hired, the benefit of it, and also protecting them so that they can do their job really well. The, the, the saying of people don't leave companies, they leave managers. I've seen that to be most of the time true, <laughs> like 80% of the time. I think that that's, that's very, very accurate. So you're going to, when we talk about attrition in the field, I think part of it is because we just do not respect uh, maybe we don't take the time to truly understand how to help that person thrive. And when you do, you find that you, these employees are they so many, so different, but you start putting together a, a team. I had a team at one point and I just kind of stepped back and I was like, it's almost like I had built a puzzle. And, and cause each one, they were very different. You know, some were edge pieces, some were just that middle piece that you absolutely needed. They were very, very different people. But when you put them together, it was a beautiful picture. Wow, you, you just gave me goosebumps because I just took my my Myers Briggs um, strengths assessment, and I I have a Maximizer as the second um, strength that I have, and that's one of those skills that being able to see how your your different team players can interconnect so you can make such a strong team instead of just yeah. looking at these are all the gaps that we have but filling the gaps together to show how you could be a strong team together yes yeah and not trying to fit a round peg in a, a you know a square hole like looking at being different in a puzzle is actually a good it's a good thing because that makes it you fit everything together Absolutely. Um, so one of the, the other things that I, I wanted to to talk, as as you mentioned, we'll go back to that elevator metaphor, and we're, we're we're coming out of the network, technology, and people. Now your network is not as much on premise anymore. Your network is yeah. in the cloud. So we have to start to think differently. Uh, what are some of the ways that we can enable future generations to? to step away from this is how things were and this is how things are to really maximize the benefit of using cloud solutions. Because I, I think just picking it up from the basement and trying to put it in the cloud isn't going to work. Yeah, I was, I was since, you know, my career started when it was all very, I mean, 
the first network I've worked on was coax. I mean, come on. Um, yeah, it's for a while there. I was like, oh. yeah, <laughs> somebody would kick the under the desk and I was like running through the, the office trying to figure out what was disconnected. Um, but so I, I was kind of like a little bit kicking and screaming going into the cloud, but the cloud is look, this is it. This is the future. And the economies of security scale that we can um, realize in the cloud are just fantastic. If you've got employees that are a little stuck in the past and, and frightened of, of the future, very often that's about education. And it's not just, I want you to go to this conference, talk to the employee and find out how they learn and what's going to be best for them. Maybe it's going to be experiential. Maybe it is going to a conference, maybe it's going to a university class, maybe it's getting a certificate, could be buying a book. Um, people learn in very different ways, but working with them and making sure that they get the education and then the experience to feel more comfortable with the advances because the cloud is the future. If you don't feel comfortable, and, and it's true, I know some some folks that, you know, they, they're, they've been doing this a little bit longer, they feel comfortable with what they feel comfortable with, but um, cloud is if you don't understand the cloud and if you don't understand what's you know the advances in technology you're not going to be able to secure your modern workforce but it it does it goes back to to education just make sure that it's education that's going to help them and not just the education you think they need absolutely and i think when you think of educate educate educating your stakeholders don't just think about the cybersecurity folks and the IT folks. Um, also think about the business because the business hears, oh, we're going to the cloud. They don't know what that means. They don't know what that investment might mean, um, how things change, how you might have to adapt the applications, that there might be downtime, that there might be delays in future releases. But you 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 wait a little bit now and it'll help you in the future kind of approach so you also have to educate your business stakeholders on what that transition means that you're going to the cloud and how it will benefit them even though there might be some short-term step backs as you invest in that migration and that learning curve yeah and i the last couple of years i've been doing vcso work and most of the time fractional cso's are with smaller companies. Um, and so I was, you know, be talking to the CEO uh, or the CIO about um, what their, what their you know, the security in the cloud. And very often I would hear back, well, we're in GCP, AWS or Azure, all fantastically, you know, robust for security clouds. Um, so since I'm in one of these clouds, isn't everything secure? Like pretty much they thought because they acquired, you know, they were, they were subscribed to the services in that cloud that then everything was secure. And it's like, no, there's a shared responsibility model and you know, the, the cloud provider. Sure, you're right. The, the electricity, that is on them. But <laughs> access control to your data, that's still on you to make decisions, smart decisions like turning on MFA. So yet those conversations can be pretty tough with executives because they feel like, well, but I paid for the best cloud I could. Why isn't it just entirely secure automatically? as well as the, the the shared responsibility model i think that that's yeah. the most often overlooked concept yeah. of the cloud is that there there's yeah. a shifting layer of who does what between you and the service provider based yeah. on what solutions you're using whether it's infrastructure as a service or software as a service um yeah. who does what for you and ultimately the data that you own, you, you, you're you always responsible for it. That's I right. think that that's often forgotten. Like you put all your data in the cloud, but you still have to secure it. The cloud provider is just providing you that plate to hold it on while it's in the cloud. Um, you still have to put your controls around it to protect it. Yeah, I used to, when I was at Microsoft, I would use the analogy of a bank, right? The, the bank is making sure that your money is, is safe, but if you choose to take all your money out and spend it, or you write a check and, and you have an overdraft, right? That, that's on you. It doesn't mean just because it's in the bank that, that you don't also have decisions, responsible decisions about how you, how you use that. Then, you know, same with your, your data. You have decisions to make about how you use your data and protect it. One of the questions from our audience as we were talking about education a little bit ago was, uh, hey, Christoph, she said the magic word book. I wonder if there's a specific cloud book that um, Diana might recommend. 
Well, I'm a huge fan of threat hunting in the cloud, uh, which just came out. It's by Abbas Kudrati, sorry, Abbas, um, and Chris Pereira. And uh, it's a really good book. I love it because it, it's about how you look at threats across all the different multiple clouds. And and because so many of us, we're all in, we're all in many different clouds. Who's in just one cloud? Um, so it, it's a, I really like this, this, this just across the cloud view that it that it has. Well, let's talk about this concept of threat hunting since you brought it up, because oftentimes some of our audience may or may not know a lot about security. So how do you describe the concept of um, threat hunting? Yeah, threat hunting is a, is a proactive approach to looking for problems within your organization. If you've if you heard the term SOC, Security Operations Center, and you're, you're running like a SIM, security, you know, uh, uh, events and information management, you know, you'll get kind of alerts within the SOC saying there seems to be a problem here. And the person who goes out and looks at, at that that problem, they're usually called an analyst or an investigator. And then a threat hunter is someone who goes and looks around the organization for um, IOCs, indicators of compromise. Those are a little after the fact. So an alert could be an IOC, but an IOC could come out in a in a threat in, in an intel um, brief that says, look, if you see this particular, uh, you know, EXE anywhere, you see this library anywhere in your organization or look for this kind of activity in your directory server, for example, those indicators of compromise, you go out and look at them, but that means that somebody's already gotten in and that's a threat hunter can do that. Threat hunters also do a lot of time very pro proactive, which is looking for IOAs or indicators of attack. And that's before there's been a compromise, but it's the equivalent of looking at who's rattling the door, who may have gotten in, but hasn't actually exfiltrated data yet. So the threat hunters are the ones that take the things like the, the IOAs, the IOCs, and sometimes the alerts, but a lot of times that may be another, another person. Um, and they go through and they see if they can find if there's anything within the organization that may not have been a, a big breach yet, but is an indicator that there could be a breach that's that somebody's gotten in and they could be do, or if somebody is doing reconnaissance, they could also, you know, you could see something like chatter on the web that could indicate that there's some kind of, of attack against you and the threat hunter is going to help to find and uncover that. So it sounds like the skills needed to do this role is a lot of curiosity, a lot of digging through the logs and looking for information, and then really being able to digest the information from threat intelligence feeds that come in and see how that applies to your organization. Yep. Yeah. Know your systems and, and honestly, actually have good intuition because a lot of the threat hunters that I speak with, you know, they'll say like, well, it just seemed a little bit off, you know, it, like all the way back to the, the very infamous, the famous book, uh, you know, Cliff Stahl's, you know, the cuckoo's egg about that 20 seconds, there was 20 seconds missing in a log file. And he's like, that seems that that doesn't seem right. And other people were like, that's ridiculous. Well, it turned out that <laughs> there was an attack coming all the way from Germany to California, uh, which is not big now, but when the book was written, it was kind of unusual um, because he had, the, you know, he knew it wasn't right. And he had this, this intuition of like, that's, I just know that my systems, you know, would not have dropped that. That's not the way these systems work. So it also helps to be, know how your organization works, what your, what looks normal and having really good intuition too, of that doesn't look right. And then the technical ability to go in and validate, nope, it's not right. And guess what? There was a bad guy trying to get in. Wow. Yeah. One of the things that I like to do is as individuals talk about roles, I like to talk about that the knowledge, skills and abilities that someone needs, because those align to the, the NIST NICE framework that someone who is looking to get into this industry can potentially look at. They could look at the NIST NICE framework, see the skills, um, abilities and knowledge that someone might need to know in a particular role and then see if that interests them and potentially investigate it further. Uh, one of the things that I always recommend is networking with individuals like yourself and uh, reaching out and potentially having, hey, what's a day in, a, a day in your life like yeah. to see if they would like 
to sit at a, a sock desk and be a sock analyst or uh, to be a threat hunter or whatever the role is to really see if that aligns with their strengths and their passions. Because you, if you're someone that likes to talk to someone, being at a sock desk is not the, the right path for you because uh, <laughs> you, you're look you're engaging with the screen versus having a conversation like this. So it, it takes a totally different mindset to that approach. And I love what you said about yeah, just go out and network, uh, see that you, go to conferences, start talking to people, reach out to people on LinkedIn. A lot of people, we're all busy. Um, we all want to help. We're all busy. So you may have to reach out to 10, 15 people before some, you get somebody at exactly the right time and they're going to, they're going to help you. People are, you know, not being rude, just sometimes people are busy, but yeah, being, we, we do want to help others and talk about what we've done. And then if you can find somebody either at your organization or through networking that will let you shadow them, that is, it's just a, such a powerful way to understand the different jobs. I mean, you know, it's interesting. You think about um, doctors, right? They have to go through rotations. So you get your medical degree, but then you have to go through rotations and you have to like you know, spend some time in surgery and spend some time in, you know, in, in psychiatry, even before you pick what you're going to do for your specialty for the rest of your career. And in cybersecurity, we don't have anything formal like that, but it's a fantastic way to learn the different jobs. And you may find out that something you didn't think that you were right for, you, you start doing it you, after you shadow somebody, you do it with them or you see what they do. And it's like, wow, mind blowing. I've had mentees that really didn't think they were suited for one kind of job or another and then had the opportunity to do it and just it took a very strong pivot and sometimes it, it's something you sort of oddball like well being you know um you know an, an an analyst and deciding i'm going to go be a lawyer and now i'm going to be a lawyer who focuses on cybersecurity policy or it could be someone to your point that really thought i think i'm in the i mean i me i'm an example of it. i kind of thought i was the i was in the data center person you know in the <laughs> the climate controlled with all the humming around me. And that's where I was going to stay because I'm I'm an introvert. And, um, uh, you know, I found out that, no, I really, really liked actually influencing, even though it's hard for me, I, I liked influencing how the company was going to make security decisions and, and not just being the one that was implementing them. That, that you touched on an approach that I really, I'm really passionate about. And it it sidelines with almost uh, uh, like an apprenticeship-like program because yeah. they do it in the medical field. They do it in the electrical field. They do it in so many trades where you have on-the-job training as well as you have to have certain types of knowledge or continuous education. And I think yeah. if cybersecurity took that approach, we really could uh, have a great pipeline of junior through senior level people that are continuously developing versus just looking for those mid senior level people. And then um, the other thing that you kind of talked on with influencing is there's a track creating separate tracks for people that like to lead people and people yeah. that like to just do the techie things. And they yeah. both can continue to grow throughout their career and they don't have to become a people manager. They can stay and do their techie things and and create innovations and um, patents and all sorts of engineering yeah. stuff, but they don't have to lead people. And then the people that like to lead people, they can manage, they can Let help manage, they can help influence. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and I think that that's the next, we still, we still have a big problem getting more people excited about entering cybersecurity, keeping them in. But we also have this problem sort of, as, as you're pointing out, you know, in that sort of mid phase of people's career, because if you ask somebody in security, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, CISO, right? That's, that's sort of like the CISO does not have to be all roads don't lead to CISO necessarily. In, in cyber, there are, we need to, and we need to, I think, start celebrating and highlighting the late stage in their career cybersecurity people that aren't CISOs. I mean, CISOs are incredible and, and it's amazing for people who do CISO work, but it's not the only way to be a mature senior leader within cybersecurity. So I think we need to celebrate that because we, we focus so much on it. And I've talked to people who say, I don't think I want to be a CISO when I, you know, at, you know when I'm like, 40 or, or 45. And I'm like, well, that that's okay. 
And they're like, well, but I shouldn't be inside. I'm like, yeah, you should. <laughs> Let's find a path that's going to work for you. Yeah, you could be you could be the person developing the the better way that the internet should work instead of being just an open yeah. set of connections that we then have to secure on the back end. Um, find a more secure way to communicate and share and transfer information while still yeah. keeping it available to everyone. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Because I mean, there, there is, there's so much work. And now you look at the, you know, the, and people might say, oh, well, you know, but the works, it, it hasn't. You look at the, all the working groups that are going on now with trust over IP and how are we going to deal with trust over IP? There's questions to do about quantum. What do we do about AI and ML and, you know, potential bias and ethical issues in there and actually creating resilient AI and ML? There's so many new things on the horizon and we need people thinking about security in those and strong leaders leading, you know, standards bodies and thought around how we do the work. So I agree with you. It's let's let's keep get more people in cyber, but also let's keep them and give them paths other than right now, just that one of like CISO or bust. Yeah, absolutely. And each of those topics that you mentioned could be a, an entire series of podcasts. I mean, People yeah. group together AI ML and expect that it would work, but you don't think about nefarious models within those MLs or that the bias that's included in there because a certain subset of people created that model and it only thinks like that certain subset of people. Whereas if you had diverse people helping to create those models, then your AI model will or ML model will come out with a totally different answer because it had diverse inputs. Absolutely, I did actually a whole class on this for LinkedIn Learning on failure modes in AI and ML, inspired by the great work of Ram Shankar, um, who's just wonderful. Uh, created a wonderful framework on failure modes in AI and ML, and I, I sort of took that as a starting point and created this this class. And um, yeah, I mean that's exactly it. Once you you start getting into it, you understand that, you know, it's not, there's a lot of work that we need to do as security experts to secure it. And to your point, Chris, about the cloud is different than on-prem. AI and ML is different than just writing, you know, code that, you know, it's, it's a big different if you've got a system saying, oh, I read that radiograph, that, that x-ray, and you do or you don't have stage four cancer versus uh, I tried to open my, I tried to open this app on my phone and it crashed. You know, <laughs> like it's a very different experience because we tend to believe what machines tell us. If you multiply two 10 digit numbers together on a calculator, you don't go, oh, you know what? I'm just gonna double check that and make sure that machine did that right. And then you go hand to do that multiplication, right? You take that as like, oh, that's gospel. That's a, that's right, whatever the, the calculator told me. Well, with AI and ML, we're gonna get into, we're gonna trust them more and more. So we do, we need to have people really focusing on this problem so that if that if the autonomous car says, that's not a stop sign, I'm going through it. And it's really a stop sign that you know people don't get killed. Or, or there's the, um... I joke because this comes. This is a joke that comes from Belgium, but it's you're on a bike and you have a child and a nun in front of you. Which one do you hit? You, you, you can't. <laughs> oh, no. you, you, you can't swerve around them, so you have to hit one of them, the child or the nun. And then you put that into now you have an autonomous car and it has to yeah. make that decision. Like, how does it choose where to go? And I, did you say that was a joke, Chris? It, it's it's a it's a Belgian joke where they have a lot of nuns, <laughs> and um, you get bonus points for hitting the nuns. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> Don't be a nun in Belgium, apparently. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Uh, it, it doesn't translate as well um, in English, but that that's the premise of it. But you okay. have. AI models that are going to be making ethical decisions and how do you ensure that the right ethics has been programmed into the code that makes these decisions? And I think those are the things that we have to think about in the future and how can we have the right people creating that code um, from different backgrounds? Because yeah. like you 
misinterpreted that joke, um, someone from Africa might code something totally different than someone from North America. So these cars that might go all around the world, they might have different traffic patterns. They might have different approaches, different priorities. Yeah. Um, for, I don't know, in India where they value the cow of, as a sacred animal, um, they might choose not to hit the cow and to hit something else. Like you, you don't know how these people will make ethical decisions. So how do we program that into future models? And and then how, how could someone attack it? And you make sure that it hasn't deviated from how it should be making decisions. That's, that's exactly it. And understanding, you know, the, the, you know, things like reward hacking. And if, if you've got, you know, a, a system that, that starts to reward hack, it, it could create more problems rather than solving problems. And, and if you, the data that you have is biased, then the outcome that you're going to have from the system is going to be biased. And if, Sometimes there, we have biased data. We have there, there's a, a great example of a large company that was doing hiring, and they were looking at their existing, their existing developers. I'm not saying that the developers should have been this this makeup, but their existing developers. Somebody at one point was like, "Women can code," so I'm not saying women can't. I, of all people, I know women and support, um, but this company's existing workforce was very slated to men. And then, and the, their hiring algorithm was starting to not just look for men for programmers and to reject women, in, you know, based on people's na names, you can kind of guess. Um, but also, it started oddly focusing on like men whose names were Jared and played lacrosse, and they were looked at the highest. <laughs> you know, they were like, "Oh, that's a really good candidate," which is bizarre because those two things do not impact to my knowledge whether somebody can code well so we have to be really careful about the data that we put into the systems too exactly um i know google has had a, a couple gaffes where their uh, neural network misclassified um animals and people and like that's the type of thing that we have to worry about when now yeah. you have security systems with cameras everywhere and people are making decisions that, oh yes, you were in this spot because the grainy camera yeah. footage says it looks like you, it has the same gait as you, it has the same height and weight yeah. as you, therefore it's you when it might not have been you. So how, how do you provide evidence contrary to, to those things? But wow, we, we, we've just went yeah. off the track. <laughs> <laughs> So let's just remind folks, um, there is the, the uh, Cyber Future Foundation's talent yeah. happening across the, the United States uh, yeah. in two weeks, starting yeah. on Monday, uh, April 19th, going yeah. across and then f uh, finishing off in D.C. Um, what are some of the, the types of talks that we expect to have um, over that week? We're going to be talking about um, why people are not getting into the industry. We'll be talking about um, networking and how you can make the best use of your networking and uh, looking at, again, attrition rates and how we can reduce those attrition rates by ensuring that we're, we're creating environments that we don't just hire diversely, but we include working environments that allow diverse people to stay in those roles and to thrive in those roles. And also, again, starting to look at what we can do going forward. So what are some action steps that we can actually take? It's, it's wonderful to talk about it. The discussion needs to start, and that's where any solution begins. But then starting also to look at um, what are the steps that people can take and what we can do. And we would love everybody because it really it does start with the discussion, and we need as many voices and ideas and brains on this as possible. So the more people that can participate, the better. We really we, we welcome you. We hope that you can come in and participate um, in the program and to start you know, in this engage, engage in the discussion and then in the taking the action to address address the cyber workforce. Uh, Absolutely. Issues. And the, the web address for that is cyberfuturefoundations.org. And then from there, you can find Cyber Talent Week 2022 uh, CTW. And that would be 
the web page, the landing page for that conference. So go yeah. ahead, join us. And Diana, thank you so much for coming on today and having this great conversation, both about your experiences, as well as some of the ways that we can improve hiring within cybersecurity. Oh, Any final you. words of advice that you'd want to give? Uh, just, you know, we, we need, if, if you don't, there's a place for you in cybersecurity, you just haven't talked to the right people. There's, there's really, there's a place for, for everybody and, um, you know, just find, find your people, find, find the people to connect to and look for people that are going to support you. Uh, because this is, this is a big problem. It's a dimension of attack. Attackers are going after critical infrastructure. So, um, you know, we need, as I said, we need more and more people to really help keep our country and each other safe. So please uh, join us at Cyber Talent Week. Join us in the cybersecurity industry. And if you meet somebody who tells you you don't belong, they're the ones that don't belong. So find, you know, find, find some other, find Chris, find me. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. For those of you on LinkedIn, follow myself and Diana Kelly. For those of you on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button and the notification button down below. And then for those of you on podcast, share this with all your friends and family. Thank you all. Have a great Thursday. Thanks. In the rapidly evolving world of cybersecurity, your business needs a guide that's as dynamic as the threats you face. CPF Coaching LLC delivers unparalleled expertise to elevate your cybersecurity startup or business with a decade and a half of specialized experience. We're not just advisors, we're your strategic partners in growth and risk mitigation. Our tailored advisory services range from immediate hourly guidance to comprehensive three or six month packages, all supported with encrypted messaging for real-time assistance. For more information, cpfcoaching.com is your destination. Forge a path to success and distinction in the cybersecurity landscape. Connect with CPF Coaching LLC today and secure your business's future.